Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Patty G Show. I'm your host, Patty G. We are here with Galen Iverstein of Iverstein Farms and Butcher right there on Perkins at the corner of Perkins and College. We are here to talk a little bit about farming, a little bit about the butcher business, a little bit about entrepreneurship in Baton Rouge. And I'm really excited to learn about his story, learn about everything he's got going on and what they're doing in and around the community. And before we get started, a big shout out to our wonderful people making this possible, Falaya Real Estate. We are in the Falaya Focus Studio recording this, and also our friends over at Government Taco. Be sure and check them out. And without further ado, Galen, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm glad we're able to get this nailed down yeah, and yeah. everybody's able to come out and visit. I'm excited to hear about what y'all are doing. Yeah, we got a, it's been a, a long process to where we are, but happy to come and share our story. Well, let's let's hear about that long process. Who is Galen Iverstein? Uh, so I'm a father of two, uh, running a business here in Baton Rouge in the meat business. Uh, we were in farming for 10 years and came to Baton Rouge and opened a meat market basically out of necessity. And I've uh, just been growing it ever since. Very nice. So y'all have a farm. Where's the farm at? So the farm was in Kentwood. We sold it this past year. So okay. we were there from uh, 2008 to 2020. Um, a little thing called COVID hit in 2020 and it kind of helped us, it forced our hand to really shift focus for our business, which we were already kind of starting to do, um, on the front end. And that was to start sourcing from other farms, like-minded farmers and get more farmers involved and getting their market, uh, their products marketed in Baton Rouge. Got it. So the, the actual farming just became too much during COVID? Well, that, and we were hitting a spot where we actually needed more land to grow. And personally, that wasn't a debt I was willing to take on at the time. So instead of, um, you know, spinning my wheels, trying to grow my own farm, uh, the idea was, look, there's plenty of farmers out there doing a great job. They need a better outlet for their product. We need to just offer their products to the, to the market. So how did y'all get into farming? Uh, that's an interesting story. So in 2007, okay. I was a very mediocre, borderline poor um, political science major at LSU. Okay. So, um, you know, YouTube rabbit holes were new at the time, and I was all in on, yeah. on going down rabbit holes. So I was, I was in a class at LSU. I had actually, you know, talked about going and get my master's and everything the next semester. I was in my senior year. Um, we were doing a class on food policy and how I was looking at the farm bill and how the farm bill was written and what that meant for certain segments of the farming community, uh, big, small, in the middle, and really how food goes from farm all the way to the consumer and all the steps that are in between and who gets paid, who doesn't get paid and things like that. So in working on that project, I really started um, diving into alternative methods of what we, we would call direct-to-consumer farming in the, in the country and looking at some of those models and really interested me in how these people were doing that instead of, um, you know, being involved in the larger industrialized agriculture uh, system. They chose to opt out and really raise their product and figure out a way to get it directly into the consumer's hands. Uh, which helped them, A, keep a small scale and get higher margins for their product. Right. They're able to take it straight from their right. farm to the table. 
So in doing that, I did some research. I went and worked on a farm in New Hampshire for a little while. Um, I, I just, how, do you, how do you find a farm in New Hampshire so from Baton Rouge? Uh, interestingly enough, there's a website called, um, there, it was set up by Sarah Grant. I'm trying to remember the name of the ATRA. Is the, if you asked me what the acronym stood for, I couldn't tell you, but it's something ATTRA. With agri- something with agriculture. Yeah, and the, it's, a, it's a system that helps small organic farms. It, it's basically a... Uh, catch-all for information in for small farms and there's a posting board on there that offers internship opportunities and jobs and I figured if I'm going to go intern on a farm let's go somewhere I've never been before so uh, it was a small farm in uh, New Boston New Hampshire went up there worked a year Uh, basically just to figure out if I had the fortitude to get up and farm every day you know, it's not, it's not easy. It's not. Um, you know, I grew up in a hardworking family where, you know, manual labor was very valued and learned a lot of it and some of those technical skills, but I'd never worked on a farm. So I went up there, worked for a year. Um, at the time, I I was in conversation with my dad trying to convince – our family wasn't farming two generations removed, basically. So okay, so my grandparents wasn't, wasn't grew a foreign, up on farms. Okay, yeah, it wasn't so, a foreign concept to right. y'all. Yeah, so – um, I kind of pitched my dad. I was like, hey, how about the Iversons get back into farming? And he and I went and bought uh, 65 acres in Kentwood, Louisiana, in 2009. And um, started there very small. When I say very small, I mean like 100 chickens and two pigs and five cows. That small? That's still not small, though. Oh, that's way too small, But uh, which like, I learned later. That's just too small to start a farm. Well, I, I guess of a farm for production purposes. Right, yeah. I lived, my, my parents lived out in Sunshine when I was growing up, and they had about nine and a half acres. And we had, I think, 60 chickens, and we had about 10 to 12 dairy goats, two cows, and like four or five horses. Right. So that, to me, is for a very a family, small family, that's enough. Yeah. yeah, but for me to try to build a business... You need a little bit more. We need to grow, you know, and quickly. So uh, from 2009, I mean, when, when I say started a farm, we were starting raw land. So you just bought 60 acres of raw land. Very little right? infrastructure. The good thing is there was, like, cattle hand, handling facilities, fence, the basics. Yeah, because putting up 60 acres of fence is yeah, not Yeah, well, there was no water, so that was a challenge, too. So, um, yeah, so basically from 2009 all the way to 2016, we just kept growing the farm. Every year, um, more animals, we bought more land, kept expanding. And um, around 2014, you know, in that period, we were going to uh, restaurants and farmer's markets with all of our products. Um, and that farmer's market model was a great way for us to get started, but it was a really hard way to grow because your, your opportunities are very limited. Uh, yeah, you have, can only sell. You got four hours a on a, Yeah, you got four hours on a Saturday to make it happen. And it doesn't. If it rains, or if LSU's at home, or <laughs> you know, all these outside factors affect your revenue stream. I need to to insulate myself from that and create more opportunity. Um, so the idea is, well, how do I take that four hours of a farmer's market and do that seven days a week? So we built our own butcher shop. You know. So did you have to get like any licenses or permitting for being able to sell at the farmer's market and like the packaging? So yeah, so all of our animals were going to either state or federally inspected processing facilities. This is another reason we decided to start doing this ourselves. So y'all, y'all weren't processing it yourself? We weren't doing any processing. Okay. 
So we would uh, bring animals live to the slaughterhouse and we would give them what's called a cut sheet. So here's how we want it cut. Here's how we want it packaged. And then we would have, we had a state approved label that would go on those products. That being said, once I go to the farmer's market with that product, if it's in that package, that's it. Let's say I have a six pound Boston butt. Somebody wants a four pound. Sorry, I can't open the package. I get you get two it. extra pounds. <laughs> so, you know, that was the second reason we said, maybe we got to get more creative on how we're doing this. Also, my freezer's filling up with all the leftover fat heads, things like that. I need to add value to that. A, you know, and we can get into this later, but, you know, taking the life of an animal is a very serious thing. Right. And I want to make sure that animal is respected on the back end by making use of all of it. And I don't have that ability. I got to create that ability, you know? So, um, around 14, we started planning, Hey, let's build a butcher shop in Baton Rouge. A, there isn't one. Um, there isn't. I mean, like, Smaller grocery stores have an in-house butcher, but there's no one specifically right, dedicated to doing yeah, it. Yeah, and no one bringing in whole carcasses. Yeah, Everything no. else is coming in, box primals, ready to put a knife to. They're, they're ordering cuts already pre-done, and right. they're just repackaging them and doing little or exactly. smaller cuts instead of bringing the whole carcass Yeah, in. so, I mean, um, meat processing has, has a in the past 40 years, the history is really consolidated. Um just to for those grocery stores to have better margins, you know that that's yeah. that's what it comes down to. Um, so yeah, around fourteen we started planning it. We opened that in uh, end of October of twenty sixteen. Um, so we opened then and I've been there for four years, six, six years. Now? Yeah, so I we we started in October of twenty sixteen, and um, it proved to be the right move for us. You know, it helped us grow uh, from sixteen all the way to nineteen. We were a hundred percent self sourced. All the beef, that's awesome. The pork and the chicken was coming from our farm, and around eighteen nineteen, we really started to grow a little more. We started a subscription service, and we needed more product, um, so we started reaching out to other farmers, vetting them based on you know, I was the one communicating with our customers for twelve years, um, so it was really important to me that when I'm going to take someone else's product that I didn't raise and bring it to my customer, I need to be able to trust that that product is just as good, if not better than what I can produce to bring to my customer. Yeah. I mean, so it goes we, from you knowing the entire life story of that animal to right. now only seeing the end of it. Right. Yeah. And I, I wanted to vet these farms and make sure they're the real deal and um, doing everything like we did and started yeah, you know, there there's some great farmers in the region doing great work and we're proud to work with them now. So they're all like around Baton Rouge yeah, or they so all Louisiana? Louisiana, Mississippi. So okay. um most of our beef or grass fed beef cattle are coming from a farm up in Mississippi and Como. Um a lot of the reason for using them is, you know, when COVID did hit, the pressure on these smaller slaughterhouses went way up and we were losing our processing dates with them benefit of this farm up there is they have a USDA inspected facility on farm so we never have to worry about a kill date uh it's more humane because that animal walks right out of the field and has one bad day you know yeah. that's it. it it lived its whole life on that pasture and then walks into the slaughterhouse on that farm and it's handled right there there's no trucking no stress on the animal and things like that yeah so it's the whole process in one place right. I mean that again going back to cutting out all the hands that touch the product before getting to the customer, right. 
Now you just cut out a whole nother section. Yeah, and then in Como, Mississippi, I don't know if you've ever been there. Never been there. Not a whole lot of economic activity <laughs> going on in Como, Mississippi. So this guy that we're working with up there, he's creating a lot of jobs for the community. You know, he's got not only the farm where they're producing grass-fed beef, pork, poultry. He now has a slaughterhouse. I mean, he's got a restaurant on farm and a store. So he's really building... He's building an economic driver yeah. for the community of a rural community, which is a real challenge. You know, we have dying rural communities and he's doing a lot to stimulate that economy. Especially so. with the people that want to stay there because they were either raised there by their parents or they just want to get away from the big cities. It's what can we do once we're out here now? Yeah, but on the other end of that is everybody grew up on the farm in 80s and 90s hit and said, we're getting off the farm and going to the city. So that's what kind of killed these communities, you know, <laughs> so not a whole lot of people sticking around to farm. Yeah, I mean, it's a different, it's definitely a different way of life. Growing up in high school and having to wake up at, you know, four or five in the morning doing milk the goats, pick the chicken eggs, and then, you know, see how the cows are doing. It was definitely different than my four o'clock routine now. Right. Yeah. And it's just, and there's a lot of responsibility. There's a whole lot of responsibility, and you've got to make sure that they've got everything they need, right? It's almost like having, you know, another member of the family that you have to make sure is fed. You know, their shelter is in place. They don't have holes in the fences. There's nothing going to come and attack them. It's a full-time job just tending to the farm. Yeah, when natural disasters hit, it's a whole different thing than just making sure your refrigerator's running. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, we we had a goat deliver a baby in the middle of a storm in the middle of the field. It's never going to be a pretty day. No, it's always a a terrible terrible day, day, terrible weather. We had to literally, we see like a white spot in the field. We're like, wait, that's a baby goat. (laughs) And having to run out there and tend to it. So, I mean, that that period of us doing that and learning it and, um, you know, making our fair share of mistakes along the way um, really, I think, now makes us a better buyer. It makes me a better customer of these farmers because I get it. I understand what goes into producing this. I understand when you call me, it's like, hey, man, uh, we're going to be short 50 chickens this week. They just weren't big enough. I understand that. I'm going to, you know, we're going to work with you. Yeah. We we were out of chicken for the whole last month because the farmer we're working with out of Shreveport, he called me and said, hey, uh, my labor staff, they're pretty stressed out and we need a pause and we need a break. So we're not going to, I was like, do it, you know. And another side of that also just goes to show how the local community, the local farming is also human, right? There will be seasonal times. You can't always get access to certain products year round you have to understand it could be seasonal it could be like you said the hands on the farm just it was too much they needed a break that's right and having a local butcher shop that is solely sourced by local farms gets people to understand okay you're not going to have everything all the time now i'm going to be more intrigued to check out your social post hey we've got this back in stock great we're having chicken tonight instead of oh we're just going to run to the grocery store and grab a chicken where they have a thousand of them we want a local product and we know we can only get it at a certain time. It creates that demand, which then drives the value of it up higher. Yeah. And I mean, not everybody gets that. And that's no. our, that's our challenge on a daily basis is like, uh, you know, being a whole animal butcher shop, there's only so many fillets on a cow, you know, <laughs> on a 750 pound carcass, we're talking maybe 12 pounds of fillet. When they're gone, there's gone. There's not much I can do about that and try to communicate that to a customer. That's our job. And that's, you know, what, what we're there to do, but some people just don't care, you know, and they want that filet. So it's really our job as butchers behind that counter. They came in, they're looking for a filet. We don't have it. 
it's not that we're out of fillet. We have this, <laughs> you know, it's right. It's, it's we have them on right. other cuts, other meat. cuts. And that's, that's what I think what people have gravitated towards us over the years is learning. Oh, you can get a fillet anywhere, but you yeah. can't get a picanha, a tri-tip, a flat iron at every grocery store. I'm going there for that thing. Yeah. So. And you can't call in and say, Hey, can I get a special cut of meat? Do y'all have this cut? Right. You yeah. know, you can show up to a grocery store and say, hey, what do you have in the back? Right. And I say, oh, we've got all this. And that's a big part of our business. People call in, put it aside for me. People have kind of learned of like, hey, if I want that particular thing, I better call ahead. You know? yeah, and it, it builds that routine, that consistency of when people go and buy their products there, they know what they want. And they say, okay, let me call. Let me call Iverson. Hey, what cuts do you have available? Let me plan my meals around that. That's it. Yep. And that's what it's all about. Like, uh. And, and, you know, go back to the trust thing. People trust you. And when you tell them, here, take this, treat it this way, cook it this way, here's a rough and dirty recipe, and they, they bring it home, you know, half the people at dinner never heard of the cut, and it turns out fantastic. Now, all of a sudden, they look like a rock star, and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm going back to them for all my meat. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's not so, only are you selling products, you're selling an educational system of people around different cuts and different produce that are available locally here around the community and a service, you know, yeah. that's, uh, it frustrates me on a daily basis going in places and the craft and the art of service is just lost. And that's like, that's, what's very important about our business is, you know, it, they, people want service and they want to, when, when somebody walks through that door, I don't care what you're working on. That's now the most important thing in the day. And yep. that's a challenge for us because, you know, and we designed the building probably not correctly to where, <laughs> you know, a butcher is always has the eyeballs of a customer, which it's great. They can, I don't know if you've, you've been in the shop, we have a big window, it looks straight into them working. But when somebody walks in, you need to drop what you're doing and tend to the customer, you know? Yeah. You so. need to see what they need and maybe what you're already working on is, can be part yeah. of their order, you know? And it's also y'all have, a great community that's starting to grow and expand right there, right mm -hmm. across the street from y'all, you know, with, um, that, uh, Ruzanne. Ruzanne. Yeah, Ruzanne. Yeah. Yeah. Ruzanne developing right there and having the sprouts. Are y'all still selling to grocery stores and restaurants or is it now strictly out of the, we have a handful of restaurants. Most of what we do is right through the door or delivered to your door. So we, we do the subscription too. So how did y'all get into the subscription? I mean, I know now when people think of Butcher Box or subscriptions, oh, yep. so yeah, it's the best thing, but it kind of almost sounds like y'all were doing it so a little bit before the hype. It was about, it all kind of happened at the same time. Like Y'all created the hype? No, I, mean, <laughs> I doubt that. Well, I mean, uh, Butcher Box was already trademarked by the time I came along, so we couldn't use that one. We call ours Butcher Bundle. So, um, <laughs> I love the play on it. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you know, in Baton Rouge, there's always, like, one of the big reasons we started the shop was we would hear from people, particularly like my age now of, you know, I can't make it to the shop, to the farmer's market on a Saturday. We got soccer and a 5k and all, you know, I got a you know, life life. Yeah. It, it gets in the way of you making it at the farmer's market. I get it. So how do we mitigate that? Give you more opportunity to come buy the product at my own store. Well, then, you know, three or four years in, then you start hearing, well, I'd make it over there, but the traffic's bad and the this and that. I'll go a step further. I'll bring it to you. How about that? <laughs> I'm going to eliminate every excuse you have for not buying my product. Click or call, That's place right. the order, and it'll show up at your doorstep. So, uh, yeah, I mean, looking at your metrics, you're going, all right, where where's room to grow? 
uh, we have a rough estimate of like what kind of foot traffic can physically come through your space in a day. What if we haven't thought about bringing it to them? So it's a flat rate box where it's uh that gets delivered directly to your door. And so y'all tell them what are what's coming, or is it like a mystery? It's box? a it's a little bit of a mystery. We kind of have some parameters that it works in. So ours works where it's about a twelve pound box that's comprised of usually between six and eight items, depending on the value of the items in the box. But in each box, you're always going to have ground meat. You're always going to have smoked sausage. You're always going to have some sort of chicken, whether that's leg quarters or whole chicken. Um, And then we always put something in there for breakfast. So breakfast sausage, bacon, breakfast patties, something like that. And then from there, usually some sort of a roast, um, steaks, chops, and things like that. So we'll try, we'll kind of rotate those items, whether, so if you get a beef roast and pork chops this month, next month, you're going to get beef steaks and a pork roast. So kind of keep that. And it also gives you the opportunity to get more creative with other cuts of the the animal that maybe not be selling as well. Exactly. It helps us manage our inventory. And so do y'all stick like recipes in there? Yeah. So it's all through email, but, um, no physical paper, but they'll get a, um, email notification. Hey, your delivery's coming tomorrow. This is one of the cuts that's in your bundle that you may not be familiar with. Here's how you cook it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's brilliant with somebody who gets like, if I look at a piece of meat that I don't know what it is, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? And now, oh, okay, well, let me go ahead and cook that. When it's funny, because like when we originally had the idea and launched it, it was really, we were trying to target the outlying areas, Central, Zachary, Baker, um, Livingston area, stuff like that. We have customers within a mile that we're delivering to and I've kind of asked them like you realize hey it's probably cheaper to come to the store and buy it and you're a mile away like hey we just like you know the convenience of I don't have to pick anything out you've picked out the meat I'm eating that month right there that's no more thought box yeah it's like the the new tv box dinners except now you can like cook it yourself right you know like the home chef the um blue aprons the blue aprons like the box kits that you purchase on a weekly or monthly basis have kind of become a big thing now because people don't want that added stress of what am I going to cook this week? Now it's, oh, we've got this subscription package. We know that Galen's going to package it with stuff that we're going to have fun to cook with. It's going to be something different. It's not going to be the same thing. We're not having tacos five days a week. You know, we're not having our normal go-to meal five days a week. We've got some flexibility now. Right, one less decision you have to make in the month of what's the meat we're buying. You know, right. And so you know. do you all deliver everything yourselves? Yeah, we, we okay. self-deliver. Yep. So How is that? How are the logistics on that? It's really not that bad. So we use some really whiz-bang software that maps it out for us, puts a pretty good uh, route together. And the way we do it is instead of like, so let's say you signed up today, you'd be automatically assigned to next week's delivery. Okay. And then that's the week of the month. You're From there on out, that's right. my week. And so my next week, week is the, the first, second week. second week of the month. Second week you're of the gonna month. You're going to get your delivery second week of the month every month. Okay. And then, so that kind of helps us spread it out a little bit um, over the month. Instead of being slammed on one week, we can kind of slam. Uh, and then we've, we've kind of gone to some customers that are in really remote areas and been able to combine them regionally. That makes our routes work a little better. But, yeah, I mean, it works works really well. So, so do y'all ship outside of the state? No, we do uh, East Baton Rouge Parish, West Baton Rouge, Livingston, Ascension. Have y'all looked into doing outside of the state? We have. Because um, we got a pretty pretty heavy audience in like the Houston, Dallas area okay. as well of this show. So that's why yeah, I'm Yeah, the curious. way I handle that. So <laughs> we have so much, and, and 
the way I look at this, it's so expensive to do that. It is. And the only way I can do it is pass it on to the customer because mm-hmm. it's, it's, that's not a cost that I can eat of shipping. Pardon the pun, but that's not a cost that I can eat on that. So it's going to end up, you're going to end up spending a lot of money on your meat. And we have a lot of market in Baton Rouge that we haven't penetrated. So why do I need to... The incentive's not there. Right. Why do I need to start shipping meat when I need... I have eaters in Baton Rouge I need to go after first. Mm. So that's kind of my philosophy on that. Yeah, so. it could be be the mayor of your hometown before trying to be the exactly. president of the country. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. And so... Yeah, I mean, because then I am directly competing with Butcher Box and Stay Classy Meats and all, all these ones that have popped up. How am I going to, you know, make myself stand out from them to a person in Houston versus, you know, somebody in Baton Rouge who gets online, I can get into that space. If they're Googling, you know, meat delivered, I'm going to pop up because of the geographic pins that we have. Instead of somebody in Houston, they're going to get bombarded by 10 different companies. I'm sure in Texas especially. I'm I'm not not on that scale. I'm going to let them beat each other up and I'm going <laughs> to carve out Baton Rouge for myself. Well, yeah. and, and also you have the, the feel good aspect when people buy locally, they know they're getting it from a right. local company. Like I was in Rouse's yesterday and on the bread, they had a sticker. It said baked in Louisiana and it was the same exact bread. One had a sticker, one didn't have a sticker. And I was yeah. like, I want the one that says baked in Louisiana. Right. Like yeah. I want to, I, I could, right. that could be the only part of the process that was done in Louisiana. But the fact that it said made in Louisiana, I was like, I want this this particular loaf of bread. And we live in a state where, you know, you know, eating local is like the big moniker with food these days, but honestly, Louisiana is probably the easiest state to do it. Like it really is because of the variety of products that we're producing, you know, your seafood gumbo or your chicken and andouille gumbo, we would prefer you to cook. Um, (laughs) It's really easy to put that over Louisiana rice and Louisiana. We have a lot of products here. And y'all work with a lot of local brands. Yeah, I saw so, you that Supreme Rice factory. Yeah, so a couple uh, weeks, yeah, weeks so we we that's the goal of our retail part is I'm not going to just be a grocery store. Right, it's got to have some local community tied to it. So we're working with, you know, Jay. We got a very small uh, seasoning section because we work with three local seasoning companies. Right, you know, we've got um, one brand of rice. We've got one brand of oatmeal. So it's it's local products that we're trying to push. Yeah, which it, goes along with the whole business model. Right. So, and then we hear from our vendors that we're getting these products from, they're like, you're actually, a, you're a small store, but you're a really good account because I'm not in here competing with Uncle Ben's and everybody else, you know. They so. don't have to go and make sure their, their you know, right. advertising stand is flashy and jumps right. out and grabs people's attention because they know that, like, for the seasonings, you've got three different people. Right. For the rice, you've got one. And so more than just having their space available without having to compete, you now are also putting the dollars back into the state. That's right. You're not sending the dollars outside of the state to different communities. It's all staying local, which is helping the economy as a whole grow, which is exciting. That's exactly right. That's what we're trying to do. It's like, so now that we are, you know, outsourcing from outside, that's part of one of the decision makers of whether we're going to work with a producer or not. So we look at, is it good for the economy? of Louisiana? Is it good for the animal that they're raising? Is it good for the land that they're farming? Is it good for the farmer? You know, are they able to get a better premium? You know, cause we talk about, um, sustainability of farming on a, I guess, a agricultural level. 
But the only way a farmer's can be sustainable over time is if it is financially viable for that farmer, you know? So that's, that's a big part of it. And those guys are getting beat up on the open market on a daily basis. So more and more of them are looking at, Hey, how can I get a little more creative on how I market my product? And I'm honest with them when we go to buy, you're going to get a better price out of me than if you just go sell through an auction or any other way that you're marketing. Well, and also for you, whenever they purchase out, for you, for the example, but the Mississippi farm, they don't have to load up these animals and transport them places. Right. I mean, that in and of itself is an expensive additional cost. If they're having to deal with somebody that's not local or doesn't have the means to handle everything in house, you've now had this added cost that could be unnecessary if you're able to source a local vendor to purchase your goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's it, it works well, you know, and it gives them an opportunity to opt out. And us an opportunity to offer customers in our community a unique product is what it comes down to. Yeah. So So the decision to close down the family farm or kind of get away from it and start sourcing from everybody else was mostly in part because COVID. But like, how was that? I mean, we we were already, yeah, we were already headed that way. Uh, COVID just forced our hand a little faster. Um, I was spending a lot of time on the road. You know, we, I live in Baton Rouge. I mean, that's wife. a far drive. Yeah, I was I was driving an hour there and back every day. Um, I was spread thin, honestly. I was just I was getting really spread thin. Nothing had my hundred percent focus. And um, when we started sourcing from other farms, I was like, look, they're they're making really good product. Um, our farm is very expensive to run. <laughs> it really is. A, a, a farm. Yeah. And like when I said we started at zero, we didn't have a tractor for three years because we couldn't afford one. I ran all the water lines. I mean, it was it was built from the ground up. Built with your from hands. the ground up. Yeah. So while it was a hard thing to walk away from, it definitely was the right business move for our business. And uh, I mean, my quality of life went up. I can tell you that. <laughs> my wife sees me more. My kids see me more. So uh, it's been good all the way around. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those decisions that kind of you get to the point in your business where it becomes almost like an, an aha, like, oh, duh, yeah. type of decision. Right. Like, yeah. why are we doing this when, you know, you start looking at your numbers at that point? Like, mm-hmm. is it financially feasible to make this happen? Okay, if it still is, that's great, but what about the time it takes? Is yeah. that worth it? You know, like you said, being able to see your family more. I mean, right. that, especially from an entrepreneur that is just starting out a business or maybe is heavy into their business and looking for the next expansion, their time is valuable more so than what a check is ever going to pay them back. Yeah. And it's allowed me to get in the butcher shop more and really grind on the numbers, you know, on being more uh, profitable there. And then what's next? Like figuring out how, what, what do we do next here? You know, before that was just not a possibility of, cause I, I was doing it on two fronts. I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, grow this side of the business, I got to be focused on growing the input too. Yeah. And that, when you say grow, you know, expand your inputs, that's a three-year process up there. It's not like you can just flip a switch and all of a sudden have more cows available. And that's what we ran into COVID was when the grocery store's shelves started going bare, the last thing I wanted to do is be the shop. I wanted to be stocked to prove to our customers in Baton Rouge and the Baton Rouge community that, these local food systems that we're building are more resilient and they're stronger than these big global meat supply chains. You know, we, we can pivot. We, we have more flexibility 
and we are going to stay stocked. So when we started reaching out to other farmers, I was like, okay, this is, this is our, our direction. Here's where we go. So. Yeah. And you can also prove that the less hands are in the system, the easier you are to adapt Yeah, and say, no, we've got a constant supply. It's not stuck anywhere. Right. Yeah. We're, we're still running the vehicles. We're still getting the animals. The animals are still growing on the farm. Yeah. It's not like, you know, up oh, COVID hit. Well, the animals just vanished. Right. <laughs> like yeah. They're still there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was across the country, but I, on the other hand, it didn't mean that I all of a sudden had yeah, you more didn't animals. Have a, you, yeah. You didn't so have a bulk. Had to People start started out. sourcing. Exactly. So, so, and that's also exciting that you're able to continue for what some farms, like you said, you're what two generations removed from mm-hmm. farming. Farming is a generational business. Oh, yeah. It's not, I mean, with the exception of a handful of people, it's not one day you wake up, you know, and go, oh, I want to open a farm. I, you know, it's you're, you're born into it. <laughs> so, <laughs> or you have family heritage that right. was, okay, farming something our family knows, let's just go back to that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the other part of that is access to capital to say you're going to do that. Like, it's expensive. It's very expensive. And banks will laugh you out of the office if you go and <laughs> say, hey, I want to start a farm like okay well the benefit of being a generational farm is you've got the equity of the land you usually have the equipment paid for and it's not easy i'm not saying it is but the path is laid out a little more clearly yeah you're not reinventing the wheel right you're just getting on the bike and continuing to pedal yeah and i mean while that was a challenge i would have it no other way like i didn't want to start a farm and just grow cows and put them on the open, you know, send them to auction. That's not what I was interested in doing at all. I think about what mine was, was, you know, when I was in college, like I said, I was a terrible college student, but it came down to what I want to do. Okay. I want to produce a thing that I have a lot of pride in and I'm, and I'm confident in selling it to a person. Well, farming gave me that vehicle and I I wouldn't have done it any other way. I don't think. Yeah. And you were able to, again, control your entire production line Yeah, you know, from the get-go. You don't have to worry about sourcing different vendors for this and that. Once you got your base set of animals, mm-hmm. you were then able to control how much you're able to produce, what you're able to handle, and then you're able to ex- continue to expand the farm. I mean, yep. it's it's one of those models where, you know, now is becoming more popular with Yellowstone and people watching that TV show. People are seeing a different light of ranching, I There's guess. There's going to be a lot of <laughs> ranch foreclosures in 10 years, I think. After you- <laughs> Everybody's opening <laughs> yeah. one right now, yeah. and then it'll close in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But it also gives you, like you were saying, it gives you a lens that is unique from somebody just going and opening a grocery store or a retail environment yep. and sourcing goods. You're able to see everything from the ground up. You know, like in here in the Fly Focus studio, Barrett wanted to start a podcast. Well, he built his own so he could learn all of the systems, all of the back end. Yep. So if later on he needs to hire somebody, he can do that, but he knows how to speak the you, lingo. Yeah, you better you know, know how everything yep. works. And like just in the past month, like when I say I started, I, I mean, when I say I started a farm and started a butcher shop, that first eight years of the farm, I was it. Like that <laughs> you, was, you were the hand. I was it. Like... I would go weeks without talking to a human being because I was on the farm by myself for weeks. Um, and then on the, in the butcher shop, it was, all right, we're open at a butcher shop. I better know how to cut meat, you know? So just got in there and started YouTube cutting rabbit meat. holes. Yeah. So like in the last, exactly. So <laughs> oh, i got a funny story about that. So in the last month with 
you know, we've had constant interruptions with labor because of COVID and things like I've done a lot of, of the production work and it's been great. Like I enjoy it and I like get back in there. It's not the best thing I need to be doing for the business, but I have the ability. And like, if, if something happens, I have the ability to do it, you know? Yeah. Like I remember you, you were posting on social media during was, which hurricane was it when you're like, Families at the shop. We've got the, we've got food. That was the only place that had power. <laughs> yeah. So I just drugged the whole family to the shop and said, "Make a pallet in the corner. We're opening." <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you were as the business owner. You you weren't so far removed from right. every process. You were able to jump back in like right. it was day one and say, "Nope, I can do it every sure. time." Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's I've uh, got a lot of hard knocks. Like I, I don't have a degree. I never finished my degree. I don't know if I ever will. I, probably should because I have like 140 something credit hours and no degree. That's almost for like two, you can almost yeah. get two degrees with that. Like I said, very mediocre student. <laughs> I saw every building on campus. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I went into college just not knowing what I wanted to do. And sometimes so. it, in an entrepreneur's mindset, they may not know what they want to do, but they know it's not working for somebody. And yeah. maybe it takes going through 10 different degree programs. If you decide to go to college that you realize none of these offer what I want to do. Right. I mean, yeah. what class did you take outside of that one that introduced you to the economical side of farming would have shown you how to open a butcher shop? Right, exactly. And I don't even think that doesn't exist. Yeah, that, that just I, I don't think there's one on, yeah. how to, on how to open a butcher shop. Yeah, There might be one on how to open a ranch soon. Maybe we start a master class on it or something. We could do that. Look, we've got the stuff here. We'll bring in, a, we'll bring in equipment, tables. I just tables. don't think there's a big market for that class. That know? doesn't matter. Be the master of your own niche. That's it. So what is your funny story about YouTube rabbit holes? Well, so being pretty green and cutting meat, you know, the first week somebody comes in, I forgot what the cut was. They're like, hey, can you cut a so-and-so? I think they were from France or something. So they, it just had a different name and we didn't know that. So I looked at the, our other butcher at the time. I was like, yeah, we can do that. And we just, we ran to the office, watched YouTube and then <laughs> went back to the cutting room and cut it for them. They were none the wiser. So what, that, was it a cut like just... That you were aware of, but under a different name, or was it yeah, something exactly. new entirely That's you exactly never done before? Was. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. They called it a culotte, and in What's U.S. they call it the top sirloin, and but the way you cut it is a little different. So okay, I bet you've like learned just about every type of cut every, that you yeah. can make. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's great. Like, uh, and we we still experiment. Like, what if we cut it this way, and what does it mean for? Because that's the thing. So, a lot of people don't understand the anatomy of a cow, it like we were talking about, it's not all fillets. You it's know? not. And if you pull the fillets off, now guess what you don't have? A T-bone. You can't cut a T-bone if you pulled the fillets out. It's impossible. So, I mean, there's there's gives and takes on it, and that's our, like I said, that's our job to be communicating to our customers. Man, there is so much content right there. Yeah. That could be made. It's been fun. So we do some, like, we call them butcher classes. I should really just call them demos because some people expect to walk in there and grab a knife and start cutting. It's just not reality. It's not safe. But we do, like, some butcher demos where we, you know, do wine and charcuterie, and then people come in the cut room, and we walk them through where all the cuts come from. It's, it's a good time. Yeah, I mean, so. that furthering the education of the various cuts you can have is, you know, just pushes the business for miles. Yep. So what has been kind of the hardest thing opening a butcher shop and a farm? That can be two separate answers. Ooh, I mean, I think like I was talking about on the farm, access to capital, that was the hardest part. I was lucky enough to have parents that were, you know, willing to back me on it on the front end there. So that was 
my saving grace there on the butcher shop end of things you know there's just so many things about running a retail business that you don't think about until you're in it you know i had a little bit of experience in retail and restaurants and things like that through college but running a retail business is is a challenge you know as far as everything from staffing to you know making sure your taxes are paid and all the things that all your licenses are up to date and all that um you know we are a family business you know i'm i'm the one in there on a daily basis but my mother keeps all of that in line and she does the books and all that my dad is our professional handyman when something's broken he's fixing it so we are a small family business you know and that's that's another challenge of being in a family business is learning how to work with family and respecting each other's boundaries and um you know when when you go to christmas dinner you put it you put it off to the side and it, this is family time we'll get back to business when we open back up tomorrow you know that that's kind of a you got to have time for both and um it's it's been awesome like working with family has been great like uh our me and my parents are really close and we're in touch on a daily basis and that's something i'm i'm really grateful for yeah, I know. So, I, I, I came from a family business as, as well. My dad owns an industrial plumbing company, and from the time I turned 18 working with him in the plants, it was a unique atmosphere to be able to work with your parents for a job. Like, it was yeah. it was, it was was different, you know? Right. It's different than going to work for a company now that's not owned by a family or not yeah. run by a family. It's a different atmosphere as a whole, but you do have to have that disconnect. You do have to be able to hang up your hat at the door, and when you come around the dinner table or the Christmas table – you have to be able to say, we're not going to talk shop. For sure. Like, yeah. we're going to, what else is going on? What else is going on for the but, other 12 I mean, hours of the at day? At the same time, like, when it consumes you, like, it's great that everybody's, in, it means you love what you're doing when yeah. it's hard to turn it off, you know? Yeah. And the, I, I'm i never a person who's like, oh, I can't wait to be, it, this is what I do, this is what I love, it's part of my life, you know? I'm not going to run from it. You yeah, know? and there's no reason yeah. to run from it or shut it off completely. Right. But it's also if something, if you had a bad day at work, you can't go home and be mad at them. Well, that's <laughs> whenever what, it's something that was work related, nothing personal. When I was living on farm and farming full time, like I didn't take many vacations and we still don't take many vacations. But that was my wife. She was like, if Galen goes on vacation, he has to do a week because it takes him three days to turn it off. Like I get that. It takes three days. I get that. Because in the, I guess on day three, you're like, I guess if it burns down, I got insurance. You know? There's nothing. <laughs> but I by, can, by day three, yeah. they're like, all right, we really, he's not solving any problems yeah, exactly. here. We're talking to him on the phone. Hey, Galen, this issues are coming yeah. up. Great. I'm 200 miles away. Not Figure much. Figure it yeah. out. I got insurance. Let it burn. <laughs> I, I think any entrepreneur that's starting a company or is heavy, heavy into their business on the day-to-day operations has a very tough time unplugging on vacation. Yeah. I mean, I know for me, and I'm, you know, not even as heavy as you or Baird are into their business, is tough for me to unplug and not be thinking about it constantly, not be wanting to reply to emails, DMs, phone calls. Like, that is a serious struggle of entrepreneurs is that unplug element Yeah, that can take a toll not only on you mentally and physically, but also on whatever relationship you have, whether sure. it's through a spouse or your children. Like, it's a serious thing. It's not something that, oh, yeah, he just he's a hustler. He's a hard worker. They're a hard worker. It's, no, like, they probably have a hard time unplugging and, you know, maybe you need to go and talk with them. Say, hey, like, let's go grab a beer and just talk nothing yeah. related to work. Like, force you to unwind almost. 
Yeah, and that's why most of my vacation spots are places that there's no cell service. <laughs> <laughs> that that force, nope, yeah. can't get it, can't get a signal. But that you know, probably five years ago, you know, there was an opportunity for when we talked about it briefly. There was an opportunity. I kind of approached my wife and said, "Do you want to come work for the business?" And that was a conversation we had. Was no, I really don't, because at night we need to not be talking about business. You know, it needs to be leave it at the door and we're with the kids, we're doing dinner and which I think was a wise decision. Oh, I, I yeah. wholeheartedly agree. My wife and I were the same thing, especially whenever we had our little one come into the picture, like beforehand it was, you know, Oh, if we were both, you know, sitting on the couch and kind of hanging out, we pull out our phone and I'd check email or something. But now it's like when you have a kid in the equation, it's my phone like goes on the charger in the bedroom. Good. And like is, is on loud. If somebody calls and I can, you know, see, okay, it's just, it's an emergency or uh, they can wait till tomorrow. My phone would give people anxiety if they looked at it. I've got like, are you one of the people that leaves everything unread? Unread messages oh. and uh, yeah, it doesn't bother me. If they gotta get me, they'll get me. <laughs> Just keep calling. <laughs> call is the is the end all be all. Yeah. It's important you call. If don't not, FaceTime me. <laughs> don't FaceTime. You don't answer FaceTime calls? No, that's awkward. So. You don't like looking at the phone. I don't want to look at you. <laughs> you should be like my 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 dad will answer and he'll just put it on the counter. I'm yeah, like, what's the point then? I'm like, I'm just sitting here trying to, you know, show you your grandson. Yeah. You're like, he'll lean over. Okay, there he is. I'm like, all right, <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> so, what is something that you would have changed over this journey, if anything? Um, I mean, while it was important for us to start small because I'd never run a farm, um, so my my philosophy on the front end was, I'm going to fail at some point. I want those failures to be as small as possible. Small and far, far apart. Right. So, you know, if you make a mistake, don't do it twice and move on kind of mentality. Uh, And then when you're caring for animals, you know, you want to be very careful that you don't get ahead of yourself. But at the same time, we probably drug our feet a little too much on the front end. So probably should have grown a little sooner. Um, And then... You know, we, we've started offering other products to, you know, after years of people stumbling in and really not understanding what we're doing. Um, it's different. Yeah, but doing something to cater to that person too because they're a customer, you know, so we we need to have something for them. So offering more variety in our case um, were two things. I think if we, if we probably should have done it sooner, you know. Yeah, so. I mean, from a business model standpoint having a subscription box is one of the ways you know where your fixed costs can be Mm -hmm. and you can still handle everything yeah like if nobody else was to walk through the door and all online orders were to see since only subscription can we still stay afloat right like and you can measure all that stuff very easily but also also like it'd be really quick to grow it Exactly. Because we spend basically nothing on marketing it (laughs) and that's what I had a you know we've had several ad agents and marketing agencies and things like that come to pitch us growing that. And they're like, well, if we put a hundred thousand dollars to it, you can get this many. And then, then what, Where, where's all the cows going to come from? <laughs> you know, it would take me six months to figure out the supply chain on that. So, and that's another sustainability. Yeah. Like, it's can gotta, you it's grow gotta be at incremental, right. It's gotta be incremental growth, you know, or it's just not sustainable. And I, th- I think that's one of the realizations that you've come to at, what some would say at an early time is you can't just 
10x your company overnight right because of your supply chain sorry grant you Cardone. Know? yeah exactly sorry grant <laughs> Cardone. You, you need you need the the one and a half x yeah. how do we one and a half x our business right. yeah. over a period of time because it is again when you're doing local your limitations are the supply chain because you can't just overextend it then you're losing your initial motto right yeah, and and it's like, a, oh yeah, now we're sourcing it from right. twelve different farms in six different states. You know, yeah, now, so, I mean, oh, we lost that touch, right? And we we want to be very honest about where everything comes from and how we do everything. And you know, you had mentioned, um, you know, going to Houston and things like that. But it's like, like I said, I want to pen it. I want to maximize what we can do in Baton Rouge. Yeah, you know, we have all these great brands in Baton Rouge that you go to for a thing. You know, so you think about like, if you want seafood. Where do you go? Tony Seafood. Yeah. If you want great running shoes, you go to Varsity Sports. If you want, I mean, if you want spices, you go to Red Stick Spice. Like we have these great niche brands, and that's what we want to be for meat in Baton Rouge. Is like, it's not a second thought. It's we're we're cooking this, and this is where we're going for it. I, I want it to be that easy of a decision for customers in Baton Rouge. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're well on the way to not only accomplishing that, but being the name, the household name for that. That's and that's you know, that's what we look at. The last we we have some things working for growth and things like that, and that's what we look at. The last ten years, we built a brand like that's, and now what's next? What do we do with it? Yeah, what's yeah. what's next on the horizon yeah. for the Iverstein brand? Right. So yeah. as we kind of start to wind down the show, we have a set list of questions we like to ask. The first one being. What are three lessons you've learned along the way throughout this journey? I mean, you've done two entirely what some would say different business models, mm -hmm. and then you've eliminated one to now focus on the mm -hmm. main. Uh, I mean, one is definitely sometimes you're in your own way. Get out of your own way. Like, you're overthinking this. Just try it and get out of your way. Stop stop overthinking. Um, another is, like, you got to learn to trust other others' ability quicker you know, um, give, give them the ability to fail. Like I'm not afraid of failing. So let somebody else try and fail, you know? So what's the big deal if they do, you know, we, yeah. you can clean it up. Um, I'm trying to think maybe answer emails faster. <laughs> Get rid of those 16,000 unread <laughs> yeah. emails. But yeah, I mean, those, those are two things that I've, I've, you know, after 10 years of working alone or whatever it was, seven years of working alone. And then all of a sudden having eight employees, managing people has been a, a challenge for me and learning it and all the things that go along with it you know it's a whole new world yeah so what is something you did as a kid you wish you could still do today ride my bicycle every day i rode my bicycle every day as a kid every day every day a yeah. lot of bike riding we rode bikes a lot we were bicycle family it sounds like you just need to move closer to the shop uh or you know, just or just ride. ride there from wherever you live. It's not that far. No, I mean, like, uh, yeah, th those except fond, for except those for fond today. memories. Except you know, for today, and pouring rain. Every day, you get home and gonna get ride the bike. You know, I love that. I was national championship BMX racer. Were you really as a kid? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did, you ever, did, you ever, could, did you ever compete? <laughs> yeah. Oh, like that was national, like, like seriously yeah, thing. Yeah, national what? champion. Yeah. I did not know that. So like, you went like all over the country competing. Yeah. So. Would have been so I probably couldn't make it a lap around that track right now at a Perkins Road. So. I had a birthday party at Perkins Road track. We were there. Best birthday party ever. We were there three nights a week growing up, training and practicing. But, yeah, those were just fond memories. If if it was that easy 
to get home and just drop and go ride the bike. That's a simpler time. (laughs) (laughs) The farm farm life may have been your your closest existence to reliving that. So what do you love about Baton Rouge and Louisiana? Uh, You always hear about, oh, the community, the community, but it is truly like the easiest town. I've, I've, I've lived in other cities. It is truly the easiest town to like build your own sense of community in. Um, you know, I'm I've lucky enough in the industry that I'm in. It's a food industry, so I've been able to make really good connections in the food scene in Baton Rouge and uh, get really good friendships and and things like that. But it's it doesn't matter what you're into. There's a community for it in Baton Rouge. You know, so yeah, I, th- I think that's what's great. It's yeah. like the and everybody's willing to help you in that community. Yes, you know, so everybody wants to help. They you. want to they help. Want you. They want to support you. You to succeed. Yeah, and, uh, everybody's very supportive, which is, yeah. I mean, that's just a, a token of how great the community is mm-hmm. here. Everybody wants to see everyone succeed and do very well in whatever business endeavor they're in. Yeah. So for the final question, what can I do to help you, man? Uh, keep supporting local things. You know, I think it's important. It, if Baton Rouge ever does grow, it's going to be important that these little grassroots things in Baton Rouge are highlighted and focused and um see the light of day so that's which is what you're doing but keep doing that keep doing it okay yeah i can do that and also i need to come get some get some more meat from you yeah come on check out that box yeah i mean it might be a little much for a family of three but once you have that second now you're a box family (laughs) yeah there we go start start so is there like a size of the box or is it all one size? it's all one that is something that we are going to launch is maybe a smaller one um for people with just two six pounds yeah six to eight pounds like similar items just smaller amounts so to to you have people with two or three people at home that uh, we a we don't have the freezer space and b we don't eat that much meat so freezer space is a hard commodity when you have a newborn yeah and then there was also um during covid we did a lot of just a la carte home delivery because that was you hit the panic button oh we have to close oh no what do we do yeah you gotta start selling something (laughs) we were doing it like old school send us a fax with your order and we'll (laughs) deliver it to you but that model not a fax it'll have like a its own website but like a la carte delivery. Land, a landing page at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> an order form i just printed it out and threw it on the website said fax me this yeah. <laughs> or screenshot it whatever you want yeah. there you go but then how are you gonna open the emails yeah. so. so okay well thank you so much galen for yeah, coming fun. and sitting in the me. studio i appreciate yeah. your time appreciate hearing about your story i don't know how i missed the bmx thing i mean it was a kid you know yeah. that's 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 an, like such an an interesting element. It's like there's, I don't know, like just because I was I was always on bikes as a kid. It's like a, like one of those relatable things, right? Yeah. Like, oh yeah, BMX. I used to do that growing up. Yeah. So competitive at it. Thank you so much. And if y'all are interested in getting his boxes, getting the Iverstein Farms boxes, a you got to be local. So if you're out of listen, out of the listening, relatively local, relatively local. So if you're out of the Louis, the, the boot area, sorry. Um, but make a trip down here and come check out the shop. It's really incredible what they have going on in here and how they're partnering with local communities and farmers all across the great state. So thank you all so very, very much for tuning in. Another thanks to Falaya Focus Studios, where we're recording this show, and also one of his local chefs, uh, Government Taco. He's got some JD's product lines in his shop, always available for you to go and get your seasoning needs. And if you 
if you're needing a barbecue, pick up some meat and grab those seasonings from the JD's product line. You restock you want, this Sunday. I know. Jay's all Full over the restock. Place. Yep. There you go. And if you don't want to cook and you want to get experimental, Government Tacos' new taco of the month is a sweet taco. I think it's called the Poncha Train. And when Jay described it to me, it sounded like one of the best dessert tacos I've ever heard of. So it's only for the month of February, Valentine's. Go out there to Government Taco. Tell them the Patty G Social sent you, and they'll be sure to take care of you. And so, y'all, thank you all so very much for listening. This has been Season 4, Episode 3 of the Patty G Show. Y'all have a good one.